If you don't know me, my name is Chris, I'm the pastor here. It's uh, wonderful that you're here. And uh, on behalf of myself and my, my wife, Norelle, I'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas. And if you've, you're here tonight as a guest, uh, invited perhaps by someone, or, or you've just come on behalf of the whole church, uh, Trinity Church Oldgate, I'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas. Will you pray with me? Our loving Father, um, on the night when we remember Jesus' birth, We realize we are remembering something great. Help us tonight, help us by your spirit to be able to understand what this means for us, to be able to see you, to be able to see you in our world still, and to be able to see the great cause for hope that we have. Speak to us in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is wonderful to gather together on Christmas Eve 2019, a night that our hearts go out to many in our community who've suffered loss from the fires. You know, Adelaide is a small place, only one or two degrees of separation. So even if you haven't been affected directly, you'll know people who have been affected directly. We'll all have stories. Uh, there are people for whom this is a hard Christmas. And of course, uh, then there are many people who have connections with those elsewhere in Australia, uh, particularly along the East Coast, uh, who have been hit with the fires, where the fires have been worse. And so um, I want to say it's good to gather together on Christmas Eve. It's good to be here, to be reminded of God, to be reminded that we have hope, to be reminded of the reason we have hope through the birth of Jesus all those years ago. I'm taking a punt that most, without knowing everyone here, uh, that most of us are familiar with the details, at least in broad outlines, of Christ's birth. And so I hope you'll forgive me if we don't rehash those details. But after the events of the last week, I thought that what would be most helpful for us tonight is to step back from that manger scene and try and place the birth of Christ in the context of the bigger purposes of God for our world. What is God doing in our world? Does he really care? What significance at all would the birth of Jesus have for us in a world that's, well, in a, in a place half a world away and it's two millennia later? Well, it's for that reason that I've gone for the readings that we've just had. You might have been scratching your head with the first one at least. Um, words from Isaiah, the prophet, an Old, Old Testament prophet. And from Zechariah the priest, the father of John the Baptist, who... Uh, said the words we just heard when he was an adult, sorry, as an adult, um, uh, thinking of his son who would grow up and in his adult life would prepare people and herald Jesus' introduction um, into the public sphere. So, of course, when Jesus was still in his mother's womb and John the Baptist, only a newborn babe, Zechariah, uh, his father, held baby John in his arms and said the words we just heard. He prophesied, in fact, about both boys, both Jesus and John. Now, you know, we're used to any new father speaking words of wishful prophecy. Uh, newborn, uh, sorry, new fathers tend to do this. 
you know, this boy is going to grow up and play cricket for Australia. Uh, Zachariah's prophecies weren't like that, wishful thinking. You may have picked up, maybe, in both readings, there was actually a crossover of language. There was a similarity there. Zechariah picked up on the words that had already been spoken in Isaiah, and Zechariah spoke of Isaiah's words being now fulfilled. When Isaiah spoke centuries before, he was uttering prophecies of God, which Zechariah said were on the cusp of being fulfilled 730 years later. These are the words which now come to us and which speak to us because because like us, these words speak of what God is doing and going to do for people who are in distress. I want now to, tonight, just to make three simple points. The first is that God's plan, God's big plan, is an overall movement from darkness to light, from gloom to no more gloom. Um, at the time of Isaiah, the situation was pretty grim. Uh, there weren't amazing miracles happening in the life of Israel. Uh, it was a time of fear. Israel and Judah were locked in a situation of international strife and conflict. There was Assyria, the superpower, threatening them, looking to expand and invade. Smaller nations threatened were banding together to kind of form some coalition of the willing to stand against this massive superpower. God was calling them not to do this, but instead to put their trust in him. He, he said, was like the, the gentle waters of Shiloh, which was a pool, the pool of Siloam uh, in Jerusalem, which, which was a water source which fed the city. At the time, of course, that would have seemed ludicrous. It seemed much better to maybe jump allegiance, to join forces with Assyria, to become a vassal state, and instead of, instead of being like the calm waters of a gently flowing pool, that Assyria, with all its might, was like the, the mighty waters of the Euphrates River. Of course, the problem with trusting in a superpower as mighty as the Euphrates River is that the Euphrates River tends to break its banks and flood, which it did. The Assyrian army sweeping through Syria to the north, capturing Damascus, and within, within eight years would, of this prophecy would wipe out the northern ten tribes of Israel. I want you to notice, uh, you may have picked up in the reading, the distress that this creates. Prophesying prior to the wipeout, Isaiah spoke of people who would be distressed and hungry, they would be dispossessed, roaming through the land without adequate food. So when they're famished, they would become enraged and looking upwards, curse their king and their God. And then they would look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and be thrust into utter darkness. It's very morbid, isn't it? You know, but there are so many people around the world who relate directly to those words. Even in comfortable Australia, even in Adelaide, who'd have thought that where they weren't homeless two weeks ago, now people are homeless. Sun hidden from sight. My and dad uh, in Sydney described to me on the phone the smoke haze there being like it was apocalyptic. Um, darkness, 
fear, gloom, things you never expect to happen until they do, and then they do, and your world is changed. I want you to see the contrast with the wonderful words at the start of the second paragraph in your reading, uh, in your leaflet there, chapter 9. There's darkness, fear and gloom, the end of chapter 8, but nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in darkness. What a contrast, what a contrast. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Um, On those living in the land of the shadow of death, the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The movement in God's plans is from darkness to light, from gloom and despair to no more gloom. This is good news. And it was a promise that God's people held on to in the centuries after that. And it was this promise that Zechariah picked up on 730 years later when he spoke of Isaiah's words now being fulfilled because he had the baby in his arms. Um, He spoke of the rising sun which would come to them from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. It was this precise promise which the gospel writers say was being fulfilled when Jesus began his preaching ministry. He began in the area to the north, uh, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, those tribes that were first wiped out when the Assyrian superpower came in and hit the northern tribes of Israel, a land kind of associated with um, terrible judgment and warfare and loss of life. It was a scorched earth which we can relate to. Matthew chapter four, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. This is because Jesus, the son of God, was now preaching the gospel there. A light has dawned. You see the hope that's been given to an area only ever remembered as that scorched earth to the people of this land, Isaiah and Zechariah spoke of a light now dawning. And so we ask, well, what difference was that light meant to make? Isaiah says, for starters, there'll be an increase in the number of God's people. You have enlarged their nation. You have increased their joy. And then there's joy because there will be an end to warfare, because there are no more enemies, no more foreign nations oppressing them anymore. Um, Uh, you know, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across the shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, says Isaiah. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. No more need for army uniforms, you see, because there's no more need for an army anymore. Uh, And if we were to ask, well, how would that happen? What would cause such a thing to happen to a nation? The answer is second point that God is now with them. The very next words in Isaiah explain what the cause is of this movement from darkness to light, from gloom to joy. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It has to do with the birth of a child. And the government will be on his shoulders, he will be A ruler, you'll see, he will govern. He has the government on his shoulders. He has the authority to govern. And we might say, well, so what? I mean, there have been countless people who have governed over the course of human history. 
But if we were to slow down, if we were to listen to these words, we would hear what sets this particular child apart. And you can hear the words, can't you? Shout out to George Frederick Handel, who put those words of Isaiah to music. The name, who this child is, will be called Wonderful Counselor. A counselor, not a sort of psychologist or your relationship counselor. No, 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 a counselor for rulers, someone who's unparalleled in wisdom, able to counsel kings and officials. He will be called Mighty God, uh, completely and fully God, though a child, could you believe it? His name will be called Everlasting Father. He will have the same character, the same essence as God the Father. He will be called the Prince of Peace, the one who ends wars, the one who forges peace forever of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom in justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Now, of course, those uh, words from Isaiah might raise questions. Where is this peace? Uh, 2,000 years later, it's elusive, isn't it? Well, the rest of the Bible would say this is delayed until his return. We might say, what about the terrible things that have been done in his name, the Crusades, the Inquisitions? Um, that's a big topic. We'll be covering it on January the 5th. Be here. But the prophecy also gives us some answers, like why the topic of Jesus' first preaching tour was the kingdom of God. Why was that the thing that he talked about? Why did Jesus talk about its imminent arrival now that he, the kingdom, the king of the kingdom, had actually arrived? It explains a whole lot. And the kingdom of God, I don't know if you realize it, but it's something we all long for. Um, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a young guy I met at a party in a backyard. Um, I'd never met him before. He was an engineering graduate working with one of our service providers in country South Australia. So I was just in a conversation. I asked him how did he like his work and he expressed frustration. He, 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 he found the fact that he was working on the ground but affected by decisions that politicians who'd been elected um, were making which had direct bearing on what he was doing, but these politicians who'd been elected, they didn't study the area that they were now given authority for to govern in, and so they were making stupid decisions, whereas he, the engineer on the ground, could sense that they were stupid and he realised the implications, but the people in power didn't really know how to make the best decision possible. And po apologies to any parliamentarians here, of course. Um, I said, but you know, who could we really expect to trust who'd have the expert knowledge on everything needed to govern? You know, who can really govern with great wisdom and make the right decision every single time, balancing all the competing needs and come out with the best answer? And who would we attribute the, 
the integrity, um, who made decisions that would serve in the best interests of all the people without any temptation to line their own pockets or, you know, be corrupt. Who indeed? I mean, just think back to the last year. The UK, Brexit, what a debacle. I mean, poor Theresa May, she did her best, but that wasn't good enough, was it? Boris Johnson, does he have a comb? <laughs> I just want to tidy his hair. But, um, you know, and he's got things through, but it's a very divided nation, isn't it? Uh, a group of nations, if you like. America, completely divided over its current president, who is now impeached. The whole nation split down the middle. Many are asking questions about the wisdom of our own Prime Minister being absent on holidays during this present crisis. And of course, no one begrudges someone a holiday, but really being away during a national emergency? Frequently, I, I phone my mum, um, who lives in Sydney, and uh, <laughs> on the phone, she tends to castigate whichever Premier or Prime Minister is in office. Uh, we've been having this conversation for a long time and whoever's in office uh, gets picked on. On one of these occasions on the phone I said, so really what you want is someone who's got the wisdom to make the right decision on every topic and also the integrity to be in it for others, not themselves. And also the staying power to last so that they can see the long-term benefits of their policies flow through. I mean, who in the world, who in the world would you think would be up to that? I said to my mother, you realise, don't you, that you've just mounted a very persuasive argument for why we need Jesus and the kingdom of God. My mother is not a believer. You see, without realising it, we long for the righteous ruler. We long for the one who will rule in wisdom, don't we? Imagine a ruler who governed with such wisdom that the elusive promise of world peace was attained, that you know, all the defense portfolios were, were suddenly dismantled because you didn't need them anymore, because nations didn't need to arm themselves against other nations. It sounds too, too idealistic to be true. Did you realize that's what's being promised here? And Jesus, when he began his public ministry, he he spoke with astounding wisdom that blew people's brains out. You know, he could cut through to the core issue. You know, if someone came to him with, with a secret, you know, agenda, he would expose false understandings or selfish motives. And yet no one could pin anything on him. Peter, who, 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 who traveled with him for three years in 1 Peter, he would write, he was without no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. These aren't glib words. These are words of someone who's lived with him for three years, who's watched him under pressure. He was without sin. No deceit was in his mouth. That's astounding, isn't it? You know, Jesus saw leadership not in terms of what he could get, but in terms of sacrificial service. Revolutionary. He, he spent himself for other people, not for his own glory. And when he saw needy crowds, he responded with compassion instead of irritation. Isn't that amazing? And the best thing about someone as unique as Jesus 
is that he is still current for us. Because after he died, of course, there were eyewitnesses. We have their accounts who declared that three days later, after he was strung up on the cross and pronounced dead with a spear shoved up his side, he rose from the dead. And now I realize I'm straying from Christmas into Easter. But it's not simply that we celebrate at Christmas time the memory of a ruler who was, but we celebrate one who is. And if we believe his words, one who is to come when he returns. You know, our advertising for our Christmas services had the tagline, what if God became one of us? Well, the third point is that in Jesus, what it means for God to become one of us is that we can look forward with confidence and hope. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 8, God cries out, Emmanuel, the word which means God with us. In context, it was a call for his people not to be frightened, but to have their trust in him. And then we hear their confidence, and you might have wondered what this was about. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Prepare for battle, be shattered. Devise your strategy, it'll be thwarted. Propose your plan, it will not stand, for God is with us. These are the words of a, a tiny little, tiny, minuscule, powerless nation, you know, about to be invaded by a superpower. Astounding words. They were putting their hope in the kingdom of God as a reality because of the promise of a son, a child king to be born. No wonder Zechariah spoke of Jesus coming in terms of salvation from enemies, you know, salvation from the hands of all who hate us, an eventual overthrow of enemies so that oppression would become a thing of the past. You know, we don't have in Australia national enemies kind of threatening to oppress us, do we? But we feel the heat of a climate out of control. We long for the day when creation itself might be redeemed. All of that is what salvation in the Bible entails. Salvation begins with the forgiveness of sins, which Jesus' coming makes, makes possible for everyone who believes. But salvation is bigger than the forgiveness of sins. It starts with forgiveness, because through forgiveness, God restores us to relationship with him. But beyond that, you see, he has plans for the restoration of a universe, a vast kingdom ruled over by his magnificent son, who himself is the centerpiece of God's good intent, of God's good plans for all people from every nation and tribe and tongue, everyone who turns to him. So knowing all these plans, you know, the fact that God became one of us means we have reason to look forward with immense confidence and hope. Those with faith in Christ need not fear what others fear, need not dread what others dread. Chapter 8, verse 13, he, the Lord, is the one we are to fear. He will be for us a holy place. And yet for many, you may have heard, heard it mentioned in the reading, he will be a stumbling stone, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Let me ask this question, what about you? What about you this Christmas Eve? Every person, of course, wants freedom from oppression, be it freedom from a potential invader or freedom from a climate that's out of control. 
Every Australian longs for the end of fires, the end of drought. We long for creation to be renewed. But the question is whether we long for Jesus Christ to be the center of that plan. So what about you? Is he, for you, a stone that you stumble over? Is he the rock that makes you fall? Is he a barrier to you putting faith in God? Or is he for you precisely the majestic, the wise, the righteous, the just ruler whom you long to be put in charge of everything? There's no avoiding that question. He is the centerpiece. He's either the stone that makes us stumble or the rising sun come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death, guiding our feet into a path of peace. Well, I'm gonna ask the musicians to get ready. But as they do so, I want to urge you this Christmas night to put your trust in the one who was born. To put your trust in Jesus. Uh, I want to urge you to let him be your hope. To make him your ruler, your God. The one sent in the Father's mercy to be your saviour and your king and mine as well. Father, increase our faith. And thank you for Christ who is our hope.